Before we begin our Torah study this morning, let's pray together. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kidshanu B'Mitzvotav V'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. Well, I want to talk to you today about the connection between spirit and the world that we live in. Because the building of the sanctuary and the making of a sanctuary for the Lord connects those two things, the things of the spirit and the things of heaven with the things on earth. And we are a people that have put our trust in Yeshua the Messiah. And we have recognized that he has made a way for us to have a lasting relationship, an eternal relationship with the Lord. And we are thankful to him for all that he has done and for the shalom that he grants to us, for the hope that he gives us. And how many of you know that shalom is invisible? And hope is invisible. Is that right? And yet trouble for the soul can become visible, right? It shows up on our face. It manifests in our bodies sometimes. And I want to talk to you about connecting the invisible with the visible so that we can get all the benefits that the Lord has provided for us because the psalmist teaches us to never forget the benefits of the Lord, his forgiveness, his healing, his favor, his compassion, to never forget that. So we have to remind ourselves of that. But also it empowers us to pray for people. And right at this moment, I want to pray for Misty Sandoval. She is um, having what may be some neurological issues and she's going through some tests and we want to pray for a clear diagnosis and also for shalom for her and healing for her. Lord, we lift up Misty to you right now. And we pray in the name of Yeshua that you would pour out your shalom upon her heart, upon her mind, upon her body, that you would touch her with your shalom, that you would bring healing to her, and that you would also help with every diagnosis that she might need. We ask for compassion to be poured out. We pray, Lord, for clarity. And we ask, Lord, that she might fully recover. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all for joining me with that prayer. Yeshua said, my house will be a house of prayer. That's right. In addition to all the other things we do, we take time to pray, and we pray to the Lord and trusting in the Lord. So this week, we're at the end of our readings in Exodus, and there's also a supplemental reading preparing for Passover, which I encourage you to prepare for. I like what Stephen Rose said, that uh, St. Patrick's Day is connected to um, Preparation for Passover because the Irish have embraced corned beef. 
And, uh, you know, that's a provocative thought for a lot of us, especially corned beef lovers, of which I count myself. How many of you are also corned beef lovers? I was once on a long trip, and I decided I would find the best corned beef in the region I was in. And so I went to many, many different Jewish delis that were recommended to me. Sometimes two or three a day. That's how serious I was. Eating, tasting, and thinking, is it worthy or not? You know, because corned beef that's not worthy is not worthy. It's not like ice cream or cake or donuts you know, where you can eat it anyway. Here's what I found out. It was so, so disturbing to me as I tried all these different Jewish delis and their well-known corned beef. I was traveling on St. Patrick's Day also, and I stopped in not at a Jewish deli, but an Irish place. And their corned beef was better than ours. It was truly disturbing for me as a Jew. And then I found joy. And I realized something, that this unites us together with our Irish brothers and sisters. And we can be a blessing one to another. And that we can find common ground and joy in what was once the cheapest meat and the most despised, except for organ meats, corned beef. And so in the spirit of Yeshua's call that we would be a house of prayer for all nations, let's give thanks for the Irish people and for all that they're doing to elevate corned beef in these days. And to take notice, and you might think I'm just being lighthearted, but I have given serious teachings on the fact that Yeshua is a foodie. And he takes notice of good food, and he will prepare yet more good food for us. And some of you might think that I'm a little Meshuggah, which I am, but not because of what I just said. It's, I said this about Yeshua because it's true. And I'll just give one example. There are many that could be given, but let's use one. What was the first public miracle that Yeshua performed? Water into wine. That's right. And what kind of wine? The best. Yeah. So now we know something. Yeshua knows what good wine is. I'm just saying that's a good example. There are many, many more. But I, w- I want to tell you this as a way of connecting something that, that what we do, whether it's spiritual or practical, we should do as unto the Lord and do really well. And that's what I'm taking from the study that we're doing on the sanctuary the building of the sanctuary, and the teaching of Teruma and the offerings, and as well the 
craft work and the artistic work for the sanctuary. So I want to look with you at Exodus 35, verse 21, one key verse that really captures something that I think is important. It is the continuation of the teaching from previous weeks about the Teruma offering and the artistic and craft work for the sanctuary. And it repeats some of the details and adds new details. But I want to just go through this, this one verse and take notice of some things. It says, They came everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit made him willing. And they brought Adonai's offering for the work on the tent of meeting, for the service in it, and for the holy garments. Everyone. Let's just say that word. Everyone. Let's everyone say that word. Everyone. Everyone. If you're sitting next to someone, smile at them and say, everyone. Everyone. Everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit made him willing, brought the offering for the work. And so we see here that the heart and the spirit are working in tandem. They're working together. And we see that people are stirred, which can be emotional, but they're also willing, which is very practical. So they're stirred and willing. Have you ever noticed that sometimes you can get stirred, but you never do anything about it? You're stirred for a moment. And it's an emotional response that doesn't carry over into action. But in this case, we see that everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit made him willing acted. They brought an offering of different kinds. And it was for the tent of meeting, what would be the sanctuary, for the service in it, meaning the ministry that would take place, and for the holy garments. And I love this. Everyone whose spirit made him willing. Some people are definitely more reserved, quiet, even shy. How many can identify with that? Other people are more outgoing. They're more assertive. But what I've noticed in this is that everyone whose spirit made them willing participated in this process and it reminds me of something that God takes notice. He knows the personalities we have. He knows our character. He knows our nature. But in this case, he took notice of the fact that everyone who was stirred in their heart and willing in their spirit, everyone participated. Some people don't participate until they are compelled. Some people don't participate until they are invited or recruited. Some people don't participate if it requires continuity and consistency. But in this case, everyone who was stirred participated. And I love that. And the Hebrew makes it very clear that this building of the sanctuary was an action that was not limited to just a few. It was a calling of the whole kahal, the whole 
community of Israel. And I want you to think for a moment also about the promise that was connected to the calling that God had given to the children of Israel. He had said to them, make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That scripture was also important as a guide for Sandy as she and the Beth Israel team worked on the sanctuary design here and all the details during our synagogue building phase years ago. The sanctuary that Israel was called to contribute to and to build and to serve in, this sanctuary did not exist yet on earth. Moses was given a heavenly vision of the sanctuary of heaven, and he followed the pattern that the Lord showed him. And so they took what was heavenly, and somehow they used that as a pattern for what they built. It seems like an exceptional process, but actually it's part of the is part of the way that God worked, has worked, and I think in some ways continues to work with the people of Israel. Moses had a vision. And it wasn't at his initiative, it was at God's initiative. It wasn't what Moses could um, imagine. It was what the Lord wanted to show him. And the scripture teaches us that Moses was able to carry out what the Lord showed him and the people who contributed, the people who, who helped build, the people who fabricated, the artists and the, the craftsmen, the artisans, they did produce what had been shown in the vision to Moses. And if you think that's extraordinary, think about this also, that something similar happened with King David. The Lord gave him a heavenly vision, a vision of what the temple in heaven was like. And David himself wasn't able to build it, but his son Solomon built it. And let me keep going. Isaiah had a vision of the holy place. And Ezekiel had a vision of the new Jerusalem. And it keeps going. On and on. Daniel had a vision of the throne room of God. There are times when God reveals to us things through our spirits. But they connect to the world that we're living in. And somehow, we are to make that connection. Now, the Lord knew this. The sanctuary that Moses and Israel would build would actually help Israel experience the presence of God. And so it's just like our sanctuary in that regard. It helps us experience the presence of God. We gather together and we honor the Lord and we recognize he's present with us. But pay attention to this. The sanctuary was not built so that Hashem would be confined to the sanctuary. He didn't say, build for me a sanctuary so that I may dwell in it. He said, 
Build for me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. And I think that's an extremely important revelation from the heart of God. He wants to dwell among us. He wants to dwell within us individually, and he wants to dwell with us together. And so we become living stones when we are like this, assembled together, and together we give a home for the Lord, and we become a sanctuary for him, a temple, if you will, for the Lord. But also within us, he wants to have a a little sanctuary inside of our hearts and our souls. He wants to dwell within us, but together with us. He wants to be present with us and at work in our lives. And so the stirring and the willingness of the people that we read about this week in Exodus, the stirring and willingness are connected to God's desire to dwell among us. And that idea is also expressed in an instruction Yeshua gave in his last days at Passover to his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 7. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask what you desire and it will be done. And Yeshua is teaching us that our life is connected to his life. He said it this way, starting in verse 5, John 15, verse 5. He said, I'm the vine, and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are gathered up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, or if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Our life is connected to his life. We are drawing life from him. His words are life to us. It's also, if you remember this, why Yeshua restated the Torah teaching that we can't live on bread alone. No one can live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. In fact, Yeshua used that Torah verse as a spiritual weapon against the adversary when he was tempted in the desert. He used it. So let's remember this. The life of faith is life. It's a way of living. And we're trusting in a faithful and a good God who wants to be close with us. He knows us personally. He even knows our names One scripture says he knows how many hairs we have on our head. Another scripture should say, but it doesn't, he knows how many hairs we have left on our head. But he knows us, and he cares about us, and this is a foundation stone for us. 
And when we remember this, it helps us to understand that God has good plans and a future for us, even though life has its challenges, its ups and downs, its setbacks, its disappointments, its sorrows, its pains. Even so, God is doing good among us. The children of Israel had to learn to embrace this reality that even with the challenges of life, God had good plans for them and was doing good for them. It helps us relate to all those in Exodus who were stirred and willing to build the sanctuary of the Lord. The people were actually on a journey, so when they were building that sanctuary, they were still moving from place to place, and the sanctuary would be temporary, yes, and only parts of it would later be incorporated into the, into the Jerusalem temple. But they didn't know all those details. They were just living their life during the period that they were going from slavery to freedom, from being slaves to Pharaoh to being servants of the Lord. God promised to go with them on the journey. That was one of the great questions that Moses had. Are you going with us? Because he said, if you don't go with us, there's no sense in us going. So God promised to go with them on the journey. In fact, we are a people who are always on a journey. And I think in some ways that gives rise to that uh, that phrase, the wandering Jew, because we're always on a journey. But isn't it a fact, isn't it true that we're always on a journey? Just when you think you've got it all figured out, something unexpected happens, there's a turn or a junction, you've got to make some decisions. Just when you think everything is stable and steady, something changes. I don't know if you follow economic news and business news and banking news, but you know there were some banks that invested in very safe and secure instruments of the U.S. government. However, there was a run on the bank, and they had to sell some of those safe and secure instruments which go up and down in value, even though they're safe and secure, based on what's happening in the outside world, if you will, the economic world, and that affects interest rates and so forth. And so what seemed to be very safe and secure became totally unstable. And that bank was taken over by the government in order to stabilize it because it was in trouble. And then other banks were affected. If you lived in Ukraine or in Crimea years ago, you may have been surprised to wake up as our friends did and find that their country and its borders were being threatened and overtaken. What seemed to be stable wasn't. 
just to use those as examples. But how many can confirm that it seemed like there was a time where you were happy because life seemed stable, and then something happened? Anybody have those somethings? Something happened, and you realized, well, this life is not stable. It's not secure. And just when you're ready to settle, the Lord reminds us that we are always chalutzin. That's a Hebrew word that means pioneers. We're always pioneers. We are always moving into new territory. And God is giving us new opportunities with it. So someone once said, constant change is here to stay. So where do we find stability? It's not in circumstances. It's not in the world around us. It is in Messiah. And it's important for us to remind us, it's important for us to remind ourselves of this because every one of us is vulnerable to the peace and well-being and stability that's based on the things of the world and circumstances and situations and the things that are important to us. <coughs> but those things prove to be unstable, do they not? So let's read a short passage from the letter to the Hebrews. That's how it's entitled. We could say Messianic Jews. So Messianic Jews chapter 6, how about that? And we'll start in verse 17. So God has given both his promise and his oath, and these two things are unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. Or here's another way of saying it. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to hold firmly to the hope set before us. Verse 19 says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and reliable and one which enters within the veil, where Yeshua has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That last phrase, it's entered in, it's within the veil. That's a reference to what Yeshua has done as our high priest and also as our atoning sacrifice. He has done this great work in the heavenly temple, not the earthly temple. This helps us explain two things. You could look at it two different ways. One is, at just the right time, Yeshua finished that work so that when the temple system came to an end, we would have an enduring sacrifice that would last forever. That's one way of saying it. 
Another way of saying it may sound more harsh, but it's this. When Yeshua completed this work, then the work of the Jerusalem temple began to come to an end. Both are true. You could look at it either way. But here's the thing. Yeshua did this work in the heavenly temple. And you might say, what heavenly temple? The one that King David saw. The one that Isaiah saw. The one that Daniel saw. The tabernacle that Moses saw. This is what Yeshua was doing when he came down and became a kinsman redeemer for us. Now, this passage that's written to the Messianic Jews speaks of things of the Jerusalem temple and the whole system of sacrifice and priesthood associated with that, and it's based on Jewish people knowing what that's all about. But it's also a reflection of this, that whether you were Jewish or not, whether you've had interest or knowledge about these things, if you want to understand what God has been doing through Messiah and what he has accomplished and what he will do, it's important to understand the things that have gone before us. And it tells these Messianic Jews there's a hope set before us. There is a hope. There is a hope set before us. So what are we to do? This is our part. One way of explaining it is this. Be courageous and hold firmly onto it. Another way of saying it is be confident and hold on to the hope. Because the hope we have is an anchor for the soul. Have you ever held on to the hope of your checkbook balance? Anybody ever hold on? Two of you can relate to that. I think most of us can. Have you ever held on to the hope that is based on your physical well-being and health? Have you ever held on to the hope that's, that's based on everybody at home being peaceful and getting along with each other? Have you ever held on to the hope that's based on getting a good night's sleep? <laughs> and if you've held on to any of those hopes, you may have experienced this, that there's a moment when that thing you were holding on to, found, you found out it wasn't working the way it had before. You hold on. And then you're holding on to, I'll put it this way, nothing. This is our human condition. We are tempted, as Cantor Aaron was speaking about last week, we all face this temptation to hold on to something or to find our hope or to base our, our spiritual life around something other than or less than God. And we can even do it in a spiritual way that may mislead us. 
Some people have faith in faith, which is different than faith in God. Some people have faith in prayer, which is different than faith in God. Some people have faith in worship, which is different than faith in God. Those things can contribute and can be useful to our spiritual life, but when we trust those things, those actions, those activities, those expressions, when we trust them, we are sometimes losing sight of God himself. We may even trust our theology. How many of Yeshua's disciples trusted their theological understanding of the end times and of Messiah? And you remember when Yeshua said that he would have to suffer? And that did not fit into the theology of the day. It didn't even fit into the theology of the disciples. They did not agree with that. Do you remember? Peter was arguing with Yeshua. Yeshua turned around in his direction and said, Get behind me, adversary, Hasatan. I still wonder how he meant that. Did he mean he, he discerned that the adversary's way of thinking had created trouble for Peter and for his disciples? Is that it? Was he saying Peter was being guided by Hasatan? I don't think he was saying Peter was Satan but he was rebuking that way of thinking, no doubt, and that way of operating. So when we even put our trust in popular theology and common understanding, we may be misled from putting our trust in God. I was on a train in Crimea once with a young rabbi in training, not Messianic, but someone was in his compartment who was part of our group and told him that I was a Messianic rabbi and somehow arranged for him to come into my train compartment and we had some interesting dialogue. It was friendly, but... um, there was this interesting moment when I said to him, you should have more fellowship with Messianic Jews because we can teach you something. And he said, what could you teach us? And I said, well, we both agree that the temple sacrificial system has come to an end. Is that correct? And he said, yes. And I said, but you don't know why. And we can tell you. And he said, 
I said, so why? Why did it come to an end? And this was his answer. It was something like this. Well, because we had, as a people, developed to a certain point. And I said, to what point? And he said, well, we had, we had grown to this point. What point? And he, he said, well, we understood we no longer needed that. And I said, why? And he came up with one more, you know, non-answer. And it was good-natured. But I said, see what I'm talking about? You don't know. And it was good-natured. It wasn't smart-alecky, though I'm capable of that. But I said to him, you don't know what happened that produced this change. And he said, this was like his last effort, we no longer needed it. And I said, yes, but you don't know why. And I said, I'll tell you why. This is what God has done through Messiah. And you didn't know that. You have lost that understanding of what God would do for us. But we've held on to it. That's why you need us. Well, it didn't change his mind. But sometimes experiences like that are, the good fruit is not that it changes that person's mind. You know what the good fruit is? It keeps our own minds clear. I did not go away from that uh, encounter worried like, oh no, maybe it's wrong to be a Messianic Jew. You know, I grew up as a Jew. I was raised in a conservative Jewish family. But maybe, maybe this isn't right. Maybe this isn't really Jewish. No, I didn't go through any of that crisis. I think I created a little crisis for him. I had confidence. Now, confidence in and of itself can be misleading because you can be confident even when you're wrong. How many have that capability? <laughs> All of us do. Some of us more than others. But there are other people who don't even have confidence when they're right. Some of you know what that's like. But I want to tell you this. Holding on to what we understand is true and real is important, whether it's popular or not, whether it's widely accepted or not. Having confidence, this is what the writer to the Messianic Jews is saying, having confidence of what Yeshua has done. What has he done? He cleansed the heavenly temple. He did a work in the heavenly temple. He, he did something for the tabernacle in heaven. That now affects the whole earth. And you see, if you don't know the history of Moses and King David and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel and these others you might not be able to put together the pieces 
for yourself. Because if you say, well, how can he do something in heaven which we can't see happen? And how could that affect the earth? And you say, well, that's the way life really works. How did Moses build the sanctuary? Because he had a vision. Not... Not caused by mind-enhancing drugs or other things. It was concrete, specific. It was this. He saw what really existed in heaven, in that dimension of the universe. He saw it. And he put into words and descriptors for the craftsmen what they were to do and how they were to make things. He found skilled people who could do it, who could translate what he saw into a reality. But as some scholars have noted, it's an important detail. All these great artists were not the architect of the sanctuary. Only Moses had the complete picture. And so people maybe made a part correctly, but they didn't know how that part fit into the whole because they hadn't seen the whole. You know when they saw the whole thing? It was when the whole thing was created, when it was finally put together. And they looked and saw, and it was like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. They entered into worship. Something of heaven was connected to the earth this way. And you might say, how does this happen? That's the way reality actually works, Mishpocha. The things of heaven and the things of earth are connected. And when we forget that, we may try to find our hope and the anchor for our souls in the things of this earth, but they depend on the things of heaven. They depend on the things of heaven. So what are we to do? We're to take firm hold, confident hold onto the hope of what Yeshua has done because this is an anchor for the soul. This is an anchor. It will anchor us. So in addition to the hope that God gives us, let's remember we have the promise of God's peace. How do you say peace in Hebrew? Shalom. That's right. God shalom. And here's the good news. We have more than our own peace to rely upon. How many of us can confirm that our peace may sometimes go up and sometimes go down depending on situations and circumstances? When Sandy and I used to travel sometimes up to 200 plus days a year in the former Soviet Union. 
I think once she told me we'd traveled too much, it was just too hard. And I said, you can do it. And then she came back to me and she said, you know, we've slept in 212 different beds this year. That changed everything. It, was like, it changed everything because I realized she was keeping track. And that set of facts helped me to understand some things. But we learned something when we were traveling overseas and having to make international trips and go through many time zone changes. We learned not to make big decisions when we were recovering from jet lag. Because sometimes, you know, we land, we say we'd be back at home and be exhausted. And when you're exhausted, how many can confirm this? Your mind works a little differently than when you're rested. And so sometimes, you know, we would notice things that weren't so positive and be concerned about things that hadn't bothered us. And we had to learn, just don't think about that stuff for a few days. Sleep it off and then make decisions. Don't make decisions when you're in the midst of jet lag. We learned that. Because our peace can sometimes go up and it can sometimes go down, depending on situations and circumstances. Now here is the good news. We have God's own peace to rely on. That's what Yeshua taught us. John 14, verse 27. I'll put it in these words. Shalom, I leave with you. My shalom, I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. My shalom, my peace, I give to you. Maybe you've had this experience where your peace is holding up pretty good and then something happens and your peace isn't enough. Anybody relate to that? Well, here's the good news. When your peace is not enough, that's okay because you can tap into God's own peace. Not your peace. God's peace. It's not religious peace. It's the shalom that God himself has. Do you know that the Holy Spirit is not anxious? I was talking to a doctor who works with neurology and psychiatry about the world we're living in. He said, we are living in anxious times. How many can confirm that? Anxious times. Young people are reported to be more anxious according to some of the metrics than they have been for a long, long time. Maybe it's connected to social media. Maybe it's connected to other things. But there's a lot of anxiety. But here's the good news that even when we have anxiety, we can cast it upon the Lord. We may need help. 
And I'm not saying that the only thing we need is spiritual because we also need medical help. We need counsel. We need guidance. We need fellowship. If you hang around with people, you will become like those people. If you hang around with people who are always worried, you will become more worried. If you hang around with people who are hopeful, you will become more hopeful. It's just the nature of fellowship that, that who we surround ourselves with will affect how we see things. And so we have to be careful to choose to fellowship with people who can help us. That's why fellowshipping with the Lord is so important because the Holy Spirit isn't anxious. The Scripture teaches us that without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. Many of us think our prayers would be answered if we're just worried enough. Oh, God, you must do it like this. If, if worry and anxiety were the key to intercessory prayer, the world would already have been completely changed. But it's not. So here's the good news. When we are worried, when we are anxious, when our peace has become insufficient, we can fellowship with God whose peace is unshakable and whose ways are far beyond us and whose thoughts are far greater than ours. And so we can bring to him our true pain, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual or mental or whatever. We can bring to him our pain and he will return something to us through that fellowship. He will, he's not indifferent. He will express his love and his care and his compassion, but he would also pour out his shalom, and his hope. He will do it. Philippians 4, verse 7, talks about how all this works. And the shalom of God, the peace of God, which is greater than we can understand, or greater than our understanding or our mental frameworks, will guard your hearts and your minds in Messiah Yeshua. The peace of God will guard and protect you. What does guard mean? To watch over, to protect our hearts, our will, our emotions, our minds, our way of thinking, what we've figured out. And with that in mind, let's turn to the prophetic words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 32, verses 17 through 19. Michelle and I were praying together this week. We've been prayer partners for a long time. And we remembered something that Jeremiah spoke about that was also made into a song. But in Jeremiah 32, starting in verse 17, one translation puts it this way. It, it's using the lofty, formal, older English. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thine outstretched arm. 
nothing is too difficult for thee. Great and mighty God, great in counsel and mighty indeed. And that brought to our memory a song that Don Mullen recorded in 1986. And so we started singing it together. And I assure you, we are not the best of singers, either alone or together. But we had a heart for this. And these are the lyrics. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Great and mighty God, great in counsel and mighty indeed. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing is too difficult for thee. How many of you remember that song? Okay, 1986. That's when I got married and when I came to the Lord. It's got a special place. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Can you say that with me? Nothing is too difficult for thee. Don't say it to me, say it to him. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Thank you, Lord. Great and mighty God, great in counsel and mighty indeed. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing is too difficult for thee. When we cast our anxieties upon the Lord and we receive back his shalom, you know what? It changes the framework of our thinking and experience. And we look at things differently. We don't only see the problem, we see the transformed outcome, the end result. Sometimes we only think about the problem. But I want to encourage you right now, hang on to the hope. Here's, here's how it works. You've got a problem? Now, pay attention to how you would feel and what it would look like if there was a complete transformation and that problem was totally resolved. It's not just the problem went away, it's that the burden went away, and it's not just that. It's that what was missing is replaced with something positive. The scripture describes it in ways, ways like this. I just want to make it practical to you. Mourning. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Sorrow is turned into gladness, into joy. And it's not by denial, it's not by uh, wishful thinking. It's because the way God sees the outcome is different than how you and I see it. We can't see it so clearly because it's not true that nothing is too difficult for me. Some things are too difficult for me, but they're not too difficult for him. 
great and mighty God, great in counsel and mighty in deed, mighty in action. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing is too difficult for thee. Isn't that, Stephen Rose, why the dry bones is so important to you? Because the dry bones of the Jewish people have been revived. When the prophets saw the vision of the real condition of the Jewish people, can they live? You know. And you know what the Lord basically said? I do know. So you speak my words. And you prophesy to the four corners of the earth. And you prophesy to the Spirit of God. Now, don't go about commanding God until you're agreeing with God. And then it's not really commanding, it's agreeing. And when you're saying, come, Spirit of God, from the four corners of the earth and blow upon these and revive them, you're saying what God is saying. You're not becoming his boss, you are simply agreeing with him. When God chose to be faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he chose to do what's impossible for people, but not for him. And we need to hold on to him. We are living in unstable times. We are living in anxious times. We are living in difficult times. But you know what? Nothing is too difficult for thee. Let's pray. Lord, we remember your goodness. We remember your promises. We remember the great things you have done and the great things you will do. And we take hold of the hope that you have for us and the peace that you give to us. And we thank you, Lord, for stirring our hearts and spirits to action. We thank you for dwelling among us. We thank you for your shalom, for your hope and your power. Nothing is too difficult for thee. We love you, Lord. And we pray this with confidence in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to close now. I hope you can join us next door at the... Shalom Center. We'll have some refreshments, a nice own egg together, good time to fellowship and get to be with each other. I hope you can join us next week also in person for our Shabbat service on Saturday in our synagogue. We'll have a great time together, worship and prayer next week, Torah service next week, Meal of Messiah, and we'll be live streaming the synagogue service too. And for all those who are participating on live stream, if you 
would consider standing with us financially. You can find out how by going to our webpage, bethisraelnow.com slash giving, for all the details. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha, ye'er Adonai panavelecha v'yichunecha, yisa Adonai panavelecha, v'yasem lecha shalom. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you, guard and protect you. May the Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. His shalom in the name of Yeshua, who is the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat shalom, everyone.